KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program, show all about land, policy, and politics. The program we have on Cameron Murray. Cameron Murray from Australia. He's an economist, and he is here to talk about Australian housing markets, give an introduction for folks like me who may not know very much. Uh, we get into some controversies over quote-unquote supply crisis myths and dig into what it would take to actually get public housing working at scale. Uh, but without further ado, let's, uh, let's just get into it. Yeah, so, uh, so Cameron, thanks uh, so much for making the time to be here. Great. Thanks for having me, Mark. Yeah, so I'll, I'll just say right out of the gate, I am pretty ignorant about Australia in particular. So I, I, I'll probably annoy everyone who's listening, you know, you know, from Australia with knowledge about how little I know. I, I think my basis is Australia uh, and the rest of the Anglosphere are similarly cursed. You know, I think we all have kind of similar problems, especially with housing. Uh, so it's kind of a basis. Uh, I kind of there's going to be similarities. But out of the gate, is there anything that an American should know about what's different down there in Australia? Yeah, I, I think you're, you're roughly right there, Mark. We, we have a lot of the same housing issues that everyone else has. I think uh, things that are different and worth knowing, uh, some of the tax settings around home ownership and home buying can be quite different. So in Australia, you can't, there's no deduction of the interest cost on your own home from your tax taxable income if you're a homeowner, but there is if you're a landlord. So you count your rental income and then you can deduct the interest from tax. Mm. So that's a slightly different setting. But otherwise, I think we inherit a lot of the, the same issues. We have um, one of the more interesting things is we've had land taxes, uh, land value taxes for over 100 years in most Australian states. So, so that's, you know, something quite different. And it's quite funny when I hear the debate coming out of the United States about, oh, it's really tricky to value land and, you know, land taxes are difficult. And I'm sitting here in a state that's been doing land taxes since 1910. Um, <laughs> so, so that's another difference for sure, and probably very relevant to Georgia's listeners. Yeah, I know there's there's some history. Uh, Max Hirsch and other people were very, you know, active Georgist Australian, uh, you know, advocates. And it seems like a lot of, you know, I think all the major states took it up in different cases. Uh, you know, the mm-hmm. capital territory took on land leases. I believe the prime That's minister axed the program in some degree in 71 or so. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say like yeah. p- people who focus on the technical aspects, uh, I think are missing the boat. I mean, my here's my mental model. What makes land mm-hmm. taxes difficult are the politics. And in particular, it is the politics of home ownership. Uh, just out of the gate, I mean, you say you say that, you know, it's you don't have the mortgage interest deduction, but you do have 65% home ownership rate in Australia. Uh, and I guess the question is, do you think, do you think uh, that I guess you know expanding and 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 uh, hardening land taxes is possible? I, I was looking at in, in uh, New South Wales, there was a uh, a movement to move from stamp duty, sort of a transfer tax, to land value mm-hmm. tax, and seems like this is happening recently. May or may not be dead in the water as it is right now but i was yeah. it looks like kind of old homeowners are some of the biggest advocates against it which is something i see elsewhere in the anglosphere yeah yeah well that's that's pretty accurate actually <laughs> so uh, the current um the current economic debate in australia is very heavily focused on swapping stamp duty which is a 
tax on the full property value when you transfer the property um, for a land value tax, which is an ongoing tax only on the land value component of the property. That's a that's a very, become a very popular um, policy switch in New South Wales. Uh, the government had been talking about it probably for the last three years, but uh, a couple of months ago, they announced their big stamp duty for land tax swap. And at the end of the day, what they decided on to make this a small target politically was that first home buyers could nominate when they purchased whether they would choose to pay stamp duty up front or opt into an ongoing land value tax for that property. So it became a sort of opt-in um system and then once that property was opted in then the next buyer would be obliged to stay with the land tax regime the problem there of course is that we already have stamp duty discounts for first home buyers so you already get um, a ten thousand dollar discount on stamp duty from being a first home buyer so so unless the present value of the stamp duty and the flow of land tax you know you choose the one that's cheaper right yeah. And so anytime you get that switch to land value tax, the state's giving up revenue because the person's voluntarily choosing it because it's worth less to them and therefore the state gets less revenue as well. So, so, so as, as designed, of- who would pick, based upon those options, how many people do you think would pick the stamp duty versus the land tax? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, in raw, I, I would say a, a third to a quarter of first-time buyers would pick it. Um, and it would be only those first home buyers who had very high property values because the um, stamp duty is a rising block tariff. So it's like income tax. You play a higher marginal rate, the higher the value. And above a certain price, you don't get a first home buyer stamp duty discount. So what you'd end up having is those first home buyers who have plenty of money, they're from wealthy families who are buying expensive property. They can choose to, instead of pay $50,000 stamp duty up front, pay $1,000 per year land value tax extra. Whereas the first home buyers who buy cheaper properties might only be up for a $10,000 stamp duty, but maybe a $700 a year land value tax. And so they would choose the stamp duty. So that's that's how it's going to work. Uh, we will find out soon enough. Would I be right or wrong to say that as well, it also is like the volatility of future land values. If you think what you're gonna buy is gonna go up, then you would want to avoid that risk, and you just do the stamp duty. Okay, like I don't want, I don't want to regret this later. Uh, whereas, yeah, if you, yeah, yeah, I guess and you I, do I on the other side too. If you, think, if you think it's going to plumb in the future, <laughs> you could, you know, make sure that you do land tax and drive your. I think I think people are pretty myopic in general. I don't think people make long term plans like that. However, if you're a first home buyer who's in their fifties, and of course there are many first home buyers in their fifties, you might be thinking, well, I don't want a land value tax when I'm retired. Right, cash flow when I'm on the age pension is going to be more important to me uh, compared to if you're young and you're about to go into your highest income earning years, but you're in your low income earning years right now. So that might be another factor. And in fact, now that I've said that, that points to one of the issues we have with land tax in general in Australia is that although it's good, um, you know, I, I'm very uh, supportive of the Georgia's view that land taxes promote efficiency. By, um, by creating a cost to not utilizing property if effectively. One of the issues you come across is this retirement and home housing stability issue. Because if you retire and you're on the age pension, which is you know the Australian welfare system, the elderly, 
um, you, you end up paying a lot of unavoidable land tax each year to stay in the house that you, you know, raised your family and where you know all your neighbours. So typically what we have is where there are land taxes, we have discounts for age pensioners because we, we know that actually the efficiency of relocating people and using um, property more effectively is actually there's a trade-off between doing that and having stability for certain groups of homeowners. And so we often politically choose the stability rather than the efficiency. And that's happened um, quite a lot. In fact, the debate right now in New South Wales is very centred on, oh, what do retired people do when they get slammed with a big land tax, right? The, yeah. the age pension is like $26,000 a year. And what if they have to pay $5,000 a year land tax, right? It's a so, old story in the book, the poor widow, you know, just uh, you, you think of the most, you know, kind of photogenic, sad story. And it's very hard to ever transition if there's ever one extremely appealing, uh, quote unquote, victim to, to worry about. Oh, totally. And this is this is part of the political um, constraint that we have to work within is um, no one wants their grandparents kicked out of their home because of land taxes. So so the pragmatic outcome there is to um, give a discount for retirees and the discussion in New South Wales about the adopting a transition from stamp duty to land tax currently the talk is well to avoid this issue what we'll do is we will accrue a land tax liability against the value of that property uh, for the pensioner and when they die or when they sell then the they will pay that accrued land tax liability is a lump sum on the at the time of the property transfer, which to me just says, well, we're just converting the land tax back to a stamp duty then, a In lump sum case, tax least, on the value of the transfer. Yeah, exactly. So the question, I, I guess, one of my hesitations with this idea in general is, is, is it worth the political cost to switch between these two taxes when we really don't like a lot of the effects that have the biggest efficiency gains <laughs> and we're going to switch from a land tax to a stamp duty and then anytime there's a, a stability issue created by you know forcing a property owner to sell we're going to um, carve out some exemption or some change and then the question is well what have you achieved at the end of the day is it worth it because stamp duty in new south wales raises i think nearly half the revenue for the state it's uh it's like nine billion dollars a year the question yep. is, well, you don't want to start giving up billions of dollars of revenue a year that no one's complaining about, really, for $8 billion in revenue that everyone complains about. Okay, so I, I have two questions to ask you, uh, kind of based mm -hmm. upon this. Uh, first question is, you know, uh, it's always very, very interesting that we always think of old property owners as the victims here, uh, who, you know, in this case, very, I mean, are, are you know the the victim who they're suffering is their property goes up too much in value Mike and mm. we don't really think of old renters ever I mean I suppose certainly in the Anglosphere in practice older people tend to be property owners at least today my question yeah. is uh, Australian tenant protections what does it look like as far as rent stabilization for renters uh, eviction protections like like if you're an old person who can't afford mm -hmm. rent increases are they getting evicted now uh, the short answer is yes. The short answer is we have no tenant protections. We have standardised rental agreements. We have a centralised bond collection agency. We have a tribunal that 
negotiates disputes about you know the condition you leave the property or um, you know hardship provisions if your tenant can't pay the rent. Um, so there there are certain uh, minimum protections, but at the end of the day, you can pay your rent and be a good tenant, and you you know as soon as your lease is up, you can be gone. There's no reasons needed, yeah. right? So there's no protect tenure protections like you would get in Europe. Yeah. So actually. That is a huge problem here at the moment, older renters. So actually the home ownership of people over 65 is around 90%. Hmm. That's, so that's very, not very 100%, high. you know, that's still 10%. It's not 100%. So we've got this 10% of renters and um, that 10% has a huge issue. One, if you're on the age pension, um, you get an extra rental allowance, but that extra rental allowance is something like $5,000 a year. Yep. The question is, well, where can you rent for $5,000 a year as a single old person, um, not many places. And so essentially old age poverty is the exclusive domain of renters in Australia. There is no old age poverty for homeowners. It's only for renters. And that is becoming a bigger issue. Uh, we can see that the rise in homelessness in Australia is kind of um, scary, the degree to which it's um, women, single women pre-retirement age who can't get yet, yet get the age pension, who aren't homeowners and are jumping hoops in the welfare system and trying to share housing with, with other, you know, people who've had very tough lives, you know, lost their spouses or their children or their support networks. And, and it's, it's kind of scary, um, that situation as well. So you're totally right that uh, renters uh, are almost invisible, but... Definitely, there are groups in Australia now getting a lot more press about this issue. We've got a think tank called the Grattan Institute that's been pushing for now for years. Every time that old age poverty is a housing issue, old age poverty is a rental issue, which is great. Um, so with a bit of luck, we can come up with better housing alternatives uh, for them. And and in general, like right now, if you are you know an old you know an older you know person who's a renter. <coughs> you are kind of part of a, you know, distinct underclass. But we're, I think we're seeing with millennials and certainly, you know, Zoomers or whatever, you know, out in America that people are, you know, struggling to get in the homeownership ladder. Is, is, I, I kind of assume that's everyone in the Anglosphere. Is that also a, a dynamic we're seeing? Yeah. So that, that has been true for the last couple of decades. So we've seen, you know, declining homeownership rates in general, but especially aged under 35 or aged under 40 households. So... In the 1980s, I think the age of first home buying was around 25, typical age, and it's getting closer to 40 now. So what you can see is that um, the home ownership rates in the elderly are very stable or even rising in some of the elderly cohorts, but it's really the younger ages that are dramatically declining, even though in the last five years, we had a slight uptick in home ownership by 0.6%, <laughs> um, so 60,000 mm. extra households. So a good rule of thumb in Australia is there are 10 million households and with two and a half people in them each on average and 25 million people. So yeah, 0.6% increase because we had a lot of investors selling and a massive boom in first home buying in mm. 2020, 2021, when we had a lot of COVID stimulus, very low interest rates. Uh, so we got a, a, a bit of a boost there, uh, which is nice. And I, and I guess the question is, I mean, so if you're in one of the major cities and if things are becoming more unaffordable, certainly if you have a preference being a homeowner, 
there's the old system is like, oh, you know, drive to you, qualify, you know, find a place for that in the burbs. Is is the suburban frontier expanding and is it is it accommodating or is it reaching a limit in any way in Australia? No, there is a lot of um, expansion of the capital cities through um, you know new suburbs, new detached housing, conversion of agricultural land. It's, I would say, um, outside of Sydney, in Brisbane and Melbourne, for example, it's still the dominant form of new housing. If you're talking about the total number of new dwellings in a period, um, most of it comes from new detached dwellings on the city fringe. So that is is still happening and. It is still a popular place for first home buyers to drive till they qualify, and and a lot of these developers are really um, marketing to young families, really you know um, investing in schools and parks, and and trying to coordinate with governments to to make their suburbs valuable. <laughs> so they obviously get the value from it, but they attract, uh, I guess, buyers who are willing to pay that little bit more. For that inferior location so, so it isn't isn't like a hell yet where it's two hours each way in a commute like the commutes are bearable uh yeah i don't think any capital city has two hour commutes to okay. the fringes no 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 no. i mean that's the um, limit i think when things hit a wall when people just aren't willing to spend four hours a day in traffic yeah no that's <laughs> no i think australia is not um, as tolerant as long of long commutes, maybe as some people in in certain parts of the United States. Um, so that's definitely definitely two hours. I don't I don't know of anyone. I mean, I can fly to Sydney from Brisbane into. I can get to the airport, fly to Sydney, and get to um, the university in Sydney in two hours. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so people don't do that. No. Okay. Okay. So I've, I'm still picking your brain about the stamp duty and everything. Okay. So here's my question mm-hmm. uh, is, you know, a lot of your writing is about basically land banking and why land banking mm-hmm. matters. You know, a lot of economic mm-hmm. models and someone all, like are always saying like every parcel reaches its efficient use and everything <clears> is <throat> essentially built out. And you say, no, in fact, a lot of times, you know, uh, you know, property owners, you know, you know, you know, you know, especially center cities, but you know, just in general, you can buy something and hold on to it, just trying to make you know value on the asset appreciation. And I guess my question is, as far as effectively smallholders, you know, homeowners themselves and land mm-hmm. banking, uh, what mm-hmm. is the effect of? St- I, I hear some people say stamp duty, insofar as it's a transfer tax, can be a friction on properties switching hands Mm -hmm. and is is that true and i guess the the same question is you talk about like land tax what is the advantage you know one i mean and you mentioned revenue but one advantage is if you do it right the actual fluidity of of parcels Mm -hmm. changing hands is in some ways i i would certainly say an advantage because it actually creates more turnover in the ways we want to see yeah, so that's that's the argument. You're completely right. And the question there is, do we create turnover in the way we want to see or just turnover? Yeah. Because swapping who owns the piece of paper, the property title, is is not really an economic production choice, right? Yeah. Whoever I swap with owns the same property and now has the same incentives I do of to develop or not to develop. So... You're completely right that stamp duty is a friction. It's a tax on trading, so people trade less. And 
I'm fine with that in many ways. We used to call a tax on trading financial assets a Tobin tax, right? And we used to think that there is too much trade in financial assets. In, in standard economic theory, right, there is no financial sector and there is no trade of financial assets. It's just unnecessary for production because every owner of an asset has the same incentive of, as anyone else. Like for, for Apple to make computers, it doesn't matter if I own half their shares or you own some of their shares, it really doesn't matter to their incentive to make computers. Um, so that's part of the logic. So there's a few things that go on. Let me give you an example. In the ACT, which is the Australian Capital Territory where Canberra, the capital of Australia is, it's its own state effectively. And uh, they reduced the stamp duty for seniors. They called it the over 65 stamp duty discount. The intention there was to encourage just what you said, more turnover, less friction, people, old couples in big houses moving to small houses to get better efficient use of the housing stock. What they found is that the typical user of the stamp duty discount bought a bigger house mm. or at least a more expensive one because in Australia, your the value of your home is sort of protected from the age pension test. So you get the age pension when you're over 66 at the moment and um, the more assets you have, the less age pension you get. So there's a, a phase out, but the value of your own home doesn't count as an asset. And so the incentive for all these people was to take their house and their other assets and buy a bigger house and then go, hey, I've got no assets left for the age pension. Just give me free money now. And so you actually got less efficiency from that. Yeah, well, what happened to the, the old other, house in that kind of case? Yeah, who, who took it and why? Uh, I, it, I don't know. But the point is they moved into a bigger house with sure. the same number of old people, right? So on net, um, they used up more space from the housing stock. The other, the other part of turnover, it's not clear that is good, is turnover of landlords. So one of the common things that happens here is when a landlord wants to sell, they typically kick the tenant out because it increases the pool of potential buyers, right? So if you've got a tenant on a lease with six or eight months left, homeowners aren't going to be shopping around for your property. So it's usually better. You get a better return. If it's, it's vacant, you can tidy it up, dress it up and target home buyers as well. So the question then is, well, if reducing stamp duty increases turnover, the people most likely to respond in terms of changing how much they buy and sell are investor landlords who don't have to move house yep. to buy and sell housing, right? And so you're going to end up with additional turnover of landlords and additional undesirable moves of tenants who are getting kicked out because the house is for sale, who didn't want to move, who now have to move. Right. And about yep. a third of housing turnover is landlord sales, right? A third to a half, depending on the timing of the cycle. So if they're the ones that predominantly respond to the lower cost of turnover, then you're basically creating an environment where it's just a speculative game to own something for a while, kick the tenant out, repaint it, hope you can get another um, few thousand dollars on your capital gain, do it again, rinse and repeat. And it's, it's sort of worse for tenants in that way. So to me, the net effect of reducing stamp duty is not really clear because everyone who lives in a big house is going to die someday and someone else is going to live in it. So all we can do at best as well is bring forward some of that um, relocation of households amongst the housing stock because it's going to happen anyway automatically, right? So so that's why I've been, I've been a somewhat of a 
not not so much a critic, but a cautious voice on this big call to swap um, stamp duties for land tax, because in Australia it's almost seen now as like the holy grail of economic reform. Right? Mm. There is nothing better than this. And I'm sitting here going, well, yeah, it's okay to do it, but you've got to see the whole picture. In, in your mind, this is people not relocate, homeowners not relocating for a new job and that being inefficient. But in reality, you're missing the whole investor class. You're missing the retirees who can upgrade as well. Um, and you're missing the fact that the net benefits are only about bringing forward in time the reallocation of people and property, not actually a, a, a change that would never occur automatically. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, so, so, so even I, in the even in the with yeah, so that's why I'm I'm very cautious about that change. Yeah, so I I think you I, what you're talking about. I certainly would agree, and I, I think this is something people say that I find very very annoying, which is just like, let's say the actual housing stock never changes. Let's say every single building is frozen in stone. Mm-hmm. Do you want to see a lot of transfers? And I think, you know, a lot of market urbanist type would say yes, because then you'll get the most efficiency, which means the richest people live in the best houses. And to me, like, that's not re- like you can say, yes, that that is in a technical sense, you know, an efficiency. I think it's all it's actually mm-hmm. kind of horrible because like, yeah, mm-hmm. I, 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 I don't think that's the goal we want to see. But mm-hmm. the like the goals we do want to see if things are working, and I don't think you really mentioned this quite as much, is we would want to see if you have a bunch of you know single family burbs next to kind of a bunch of transit stations, if people move out and the owner occupiers leave, and then people put up you know a ten story building there, then you actually have better efficiency as far as we have better housing stock in the places we want to see. And kind of, it would actually make the right kind of supply uh, in in different ways. And uh, yeah. and I suppose that's another part of land banking is when you land bank, you're not really you know you're you're not really changing that. And I'm just like, I, I think this kind of goes to the question of like, is there a supply crisis? And I uh-huh. think there's a lot of ways to look at it. The first way I looked at it, I I, I looked at Sydney and I just looked in Google Earth out of it, and looked around, mm-hmm. and there's like. There are so much gruesome single-family house areas everywhere, and I just can't imagine that's a good thing. I, and I just, uh, why is that the case? Yeah, look, I think I have a different view on this sing- single-family dwelling as being, you know, taking up space and being inefficient, um, because that view almost assumes that there is a shortage and that we would have got more dwellings if someone could demolish these buildings. But I don't think that's true. I don't think the total number of dwellings would be very different at all if we allowed demolition of every single family home. So that's the big difference. And I'll tell you why. The answer is has a lot to do with this research on land banking that I I do. And I guess the the main message there is you, you only have one chance to develop a property and put a building on it, right? And so the choice of when to do that is very important for the present value of the property over, you know, the whole, the long term. So for example, if I build a five-story building today, if I knock down a detached home, build a five-story building with 20 apartments, as soon as I've done that, if the price increases and I could have made more money from building a 10-story building, 
I can't do it. It's inefficient. I can't knock down the five-story one efficient, like cost-effectively and build the 10-story one. So there's always this sort of optimal rate per period where there's the people waiting and the people going in terms of the property owners collectively in terms of building new dwellings. And so for me, I don't see the fact that there are lots of single family houses in good neighborhoods as being an issue of itself. I, I don't, I'm, I'm an economist. I don't really care if my houses are stacked on top, side by side, triangular, rectangular, you know, the shape of them is relatively unimportant compared to the total stock of them in the market in terms of setting the price and the availability. Uh, so that's that's where I, I differ, I think, um, because there are plenty of places in Sydney zone for housing. And what you find is that when the market slows down, everybody stops building houses. And the question is there, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> How are we going to get more stock unless you build them? You're essentially, the analogy I use is, is the bathtub. The stock of housing is how much water is in the bathtub, right? And you might say, oh, there's too many single family dwellings that you can't build apartments on. So you're basically saying your bathtub's too small. There's not enough space in it to fit more dwellings. But the bathtub's not even full. It's just just got a little water off the bottom. Yeah. And what you're saying, you know, and, and so there's this hidden assumption that the bathtub is full when it's not. And what you've got to do is not focus on how big your bathtub should be when it's basically empty. It's how fast you're turning on that tap. And how fast that tap goes is how quickly people respond to market conditions or property owners and how quickly they'll supply, like the rate per period of time that we add to the dwelling stock. That's the real um, sort of question there. And that, that can vary by you know, a factor of 20 or 50, depending on your location. So, for example, we see in the big housing estates on the edge of capital cities, I just did a little study on this using all the sales data, um, that they will vary the rate at which they sell and develop by a factor of 40. So, they'll sell three to five per month when the market's quiet. And then when there's a boom, they'll sell 60 or 80 per month. And the question is, well, if you could sell 80 per month in this big approved subdivision, with 5,000 potential houses in it, what stopped you building 80 a month from the very beginning? Why did you only build 80 per month during the boom and then drop back to five per month when the price was the highest it's ever been? Yeah. That's I mean- the sort of, that's where I see this sort of built-in speed limit. And so I don't, I don't so much worry about the shape of the housing or there's lots of well-located single family dwellings or whatever. I, I worry about the speed at which opportunities to develop are taken up. Yeah, I think there's two really interesting points there. You know, one being generally, you know, as you say, what is the speed? What is regulating? What is stopping it? You know, essentially Mm -hmm. what, you know, I, I would say, why don't we have a real glut? You know, why don't we see things certainly go down to marginal cost of production? And why can't we see... Uh, just basically an unleashing, you know, uh, and the other part Mm -hmm. is, I mean, I suppose one thing I'd push back on is there is, I think, and I I see this too in in your kind of, you know, one of your papers on a supply crisis, Mm -hmm. there is a way of looking at cities as essentially supply and demand. There is, there is a supply Mm -hmm. of housing, there's demand of housing, and not really talking about kind of spatial topography and location within Mm -hmm. a city. I mean, I would Mm -hmm. say that the problem to me so much when I see single-family houses near an urban core isn't so much of, well, there must be a shortage as much as 
this is a bad shape. It's inefficient. Yeah, I don't yeah. like the fact that people are, you know, commuting from the edge of a city when they could <clears throat> be having being much closer to the city core because we. I mean, you said they're not t- wasting room. Yeah. I would I would push back and say no. I, I think they are wasting room. I think that's a big waste of space. Yeah. Look, that that again, that assumes that the shape that the central part of a city is relatively static. If you look at European cities, for example, they usually preserve the old core. And when they expand, they expand, but they expand densely in a new location and they connect those locations well with transport, right? So it's possible for the city to um, evolve and be efficient without retaining just that one core that you want to maximize the density at. You can have lots of clusters of different areas and in between them, um, you know, detached housing or whatever the legacy uses are. Yeah, that's a kind of sprawl I would like a lot more than the Anglosphere version of sprawl. I think, you know... Uh, Well, that's... Yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, maybe that's the big difference in Australia because that's been the intention of city planning in Australia since the 1990s Mm. is this cluster of centres approach. So, uh, I live in Brisbane, although I work for the University of Sydney, and that's what we've seen is these regional transport hubs within the city as a whole doing five to ten-storey apartments Uh, in quite a broad suburban area. And so you've got these lots of clusters all around the city and there's still the older detached suburbs. And what we do in those is we do um, sort of soft infill. So we do dual occupancy. So we have a granny flat rule where if your property is over 400 square metres, so 4,000 square feet, um, you automatically are allowed to build a granny flat less than um, 100 square metres. And within a certain size, everyone can do it. Or like you just literally fill out a form and off you go. And we also do a lot of townhouses. So like the duplexes and things um, in the detached suburbs. And that's pretty pretty broadly uncontroversial, um, that approach that we've had. So so maybe maybe that's why I see it a little bit differently. Um, also, I think in, in Australia, the... Um, a lot of the detached housing suburbs have smaller blocks than what you probably have in mind in the US. So a quarter acre um, is what, a thousand square meters or nearly. That's very, very rare. Yeah. In in any suburbs. This is this is almost rural for us, right? Even the new housing subdivisions right on the fringe are like four hundred square meter blocks. And so are, to be honest, most of the older suburbs, 400 to 600. 800 yeah, well, 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 going around well, Google Earth, I didn't quite go yeah. out to the exurb. So I, I can, I'll take your word for yeah. it that they're not as, as grim as the U.S. McMansion exurbs. No, no, no. no I mean, they're McMansions, but they're small blocks and they yeah. they usually got good parks and schools and, and whatnot. I, I, like, I'm not upset about them. I think the developers try and retain value because they have such a, an ongoing presence there that they have to sell houses 10 years after their first one. So it's got to look good for quite a long time to keep selling houses. Yeah. So maybe that's another difference as well. Why I don't see, you know, if, if these were like acre lots um, in the inner city, I'd probably have similar views to you that that's a bit over the top. <laughs> I guess what goes um, in my head is really about the kind of commuting, you know, and kind of what kind of mode share, how people are getting around, where and why. Yeah. So I'm totally with you on that. I think there is an efficient way to grow a city and that efficient way is not sprawl only and preserve everything in the existing city the way it is. I think that's, um, you know, that's only expanding on one margin. It's accelerating one type of use, not a range of alternative uses. And I'm a big fan of optionality. So having lots of alternatives. 
So in a, that's part of the benefit of the city is to get from A to B, you can ride your bike, catch your bus, drive your car, do whatever, right? It's all, there's lots of options for getting around. And I think if you grow um, at lots, lots of frontiers, so the clustered centres within the city, the soft infill and the, the, the um, you know, the outer edge of the city, you can um, sort of get better returns for those transport investments across the city. And so in those inner city areas, you're not going to build more roads because that's, you know, very uh, expensive and uh, inefficient use of space, but you might build lots of bike lanes and busways, whatever. And then, you know, you connect them to the other parts of the network in the outer suburbs, which is, which is in general what the approach is in most cities here. Um, they're, they're, you know, most city councils are reasonably sophisticated uh, about this. There's obviously debates about every single train station and every single bit of infrastructure um, as is normal. But, um, yeah, I, I think it's a reasonable way to go. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm not about the end of cars. I think cars have a place, but their place is not dominating the new transport investment we should make in a densifying existing suburb. That's not the place for supporting mm. car use. That's the place for getting beyond car use to more efficient um, ways of getting around. So I think, you know, you've got to be a bit more uh, contextual on this and a bit bit smarter about um, how you go about it. Well, I, I'll, I think I'll just continue with my, you know, band cars, you know, kind of kind mm-hmm. of mode. But that's, you know, I think we'll agree to disagree on that. Uh, okay, but okay, so changing gears, affordability. Uh, you know, so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think just in general, uh, some of your work is about, you know, kind of how people talk about a supply crisis, affordability issues in Australia. Mm-hmm. So just very briefly, why don't you state your thesis and kind of what, 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 you, what your take is on all this? <clears throat> okay, uh, so... My thesis is that private property markets get you private property market outcomes. And one of those outcomes is maximizing the value of property rights. So just like in a, the owners of Apple shares are in the business of um, not flooding the market and crashing the price, but holding those assets to maximize their value, so too are all the existing property owners. So when you have a private property system, you get a housing crisis, you get unequal access to land and all those things that societies have been complaining about for centuries, if not millennia. I, I replicated uh, one of Ed Glace's approaches to showing the cost of zoning on archaeological records from ancient Mesopotamia from 2000 BC and found that, oh, look, if you do the property records there and his method, you get the same outcome. Now, the point of that was sort of to de- debunk the method, but I would argue that society then had similar concerns about the working class and the poor not having access to lots of space and lots of property. So that's my general thesis, is that private property markets get you private property market outcomes, which are maximising the value of those rights. And if you want something better than that, if you want an outcome that's better than that or eat more equal than that or different from that, you need some non-market actor who is paid, you know, collectively to get the outcome you want. So I'm a big fan of public options for, for housing. Uh, and I'm a very big fan of Singapore's public home ownership approach, which is quite different from, I guess, the traditional historical public housing in Australia, where you just take the 5% of the poorest people and chuck them all in a, the cheapest dwelling you can build in one suburb, which is nowhere near 
anybody else. And I, yeah, so that's one way to do it. It's not the best way. I think Singapore's approach of public home ownership for everybody, which in many ways replicates Australia's public health system. So in public health, we had the same debates after the Second World War all the way into the 70s of what do we do about these unhealthy people who can't afford to get healthcare? Should we subsidize private health insurance? Should we give churches money to insure their patrons? What should we do? And we came up with, well, how about we pool our resources and create a public alternative for anyone who can't afford healthcare? And if, if you want it, you can have it. That's what we did. And no one complains. It's an amazing system. And in Singapore, it's also true that no one complains about the public housing there. In fact, they see it as their birthright. And if you try and tamper with it, you know, it politically, it's, it's suicide. So that's where I see it. The private market does its thing. It's fine. I don't want to replace it. I want to augment it. I want to add an additional option. And that's how I think you get people into affordable housing and secure housing. I guess one thing, if you're talking about Singapore, I mean, Singapore did, in fact, really essentially replace it. I mean, uh, HDB housing <laughs> is, you know, like 95% of what Singapore mm-hmm. citizens use, which, I mean, if it works, it works. I, I, I certainly am a big fan of, of Singapore HDB, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it is definitely a vigorous program. I, I think it's always a big question, how do we get from here to there? Uh, but I am yeah. certainly in, in heavy agreement with the fact, if, if nothing else, they have avoided the problem of, you know, you could say land banking or, or just the issue of mm-hmm. how do you, like, what are the problems of housing being an investment? And Singapore kind mm-hmm. of futzes with it where they make owning your condo, it is sort of like a piggy bank, but it's a piggy bank that they essentially control mm-hmm. from the top down to make sure your piggy bank doesn't get too fat. As opposed to mm-hmm. like a lot of the Anglosphere, you know, our our housing can be our investment and our retirement plans, but like there is no ceiling for how like how grotesque and you know how how rich people can get off of off their real estate, and that's a that's a problem. It's it's certainly not controlled. No, you're t- you're totally right. In fact, that you, you're sort of getting to the heart of one of the big political tensions is that. At the same time as we want everyone to have cheap housing who doesn't have it, we also want to have a class of landlords who make a lot of money for their retirement from property. And you can't really have both, right? Um, because they're both the they're opposite sides of the market. I mean, the landlord is paying the money, uh, the, the tenant, sorry, is paying the money that gives the value to the landlord. Um, that cash flow creates the income and, and the income is reflected in the capital value. So you can't you can't have both at the same time. So Singapore, the way I like to describe it is that the, the Henry George solution of taxing the value of land is one way to redistribute the value, the unearned gains from property ownership. You can tax the value and redistribute the value. Another way is to directly redistribute ownership of property, which is the Singapore way, which says everybody has the right to a little bit of property uh, enough that they get secure housing. And so I think either way is fine. And I'm sure they're working in conjunction with each other, taxing um, private dwellings and redistributing property at a cheap price to people who don't own property. So I'm, I'm completely fine with that. Yeah. And just offhand, I want, you know, George himself yeah. said like, yeah, if you, if you essentially, you know, nationalize, socialize all the land and divvy it up in a fair way, that works too. I'm I'm less convinced this is a political winner. Mm-hmm. I think the LVT is a political winner, and I'm honestly off the off the gate. Look, you know, check the scoreboard. Uh, honestly, I yeah. think the Singapore method 
has a track record of working in a way that LVT and the history of tax revolts, it scares me. I, I really don't think if the only way mm-hmm. to really make LVT stick is that if you completely change the basis of home ownership, which I'm, you know, yeah. would like to see. I don't, I don't really know how we get from here to there. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's the sort of, um, you're right, you changed the nature of home ownership. And I think that's a cultural thing. It's entrenched, as you were talking about earlier, the commonalities with the Anglo sphere. Um, home ownership, your, your castle, you know, one of the most famous films in Australia is called The Castle from the mid 90s. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it. Um, and it's all about home ownership, the pride you have in your home, the security it gives you, etc. So I think that's 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 my pitch. And so what I've been pitching the last 12 months is that we should trial the Singapore method in Australia. We should initially trial it with um, nurses or publics or teachers who are teaching in really expensive suburbs of the capital cities. And I think once you start it, you'll find everyone else wants it as well. Um, just like public healthcare, once you start it, everyone thinks it's great. And in fact, we have the problem now in public healthcare that we have to give tax breaks to people to get private health insurance because the public system works so well. And people get and you know people find it um, as really good value. Young people just don't want private health insurance because the public hospitals are quite good. Um, I've been using them. My kids were born in public hospitals. We literally. Um, you know, have taken them there for their broken legs and everything. It's all free. It's amazing. I'd rather just pay my tax and have a system like that than also jump through these tax breaks to get a private healthcare and, you know, deal with all the out-of-pockets and whatnot. So in that that's why I think Singapore's HDB has become so dominant is once you start this, people go, well, that's good enough. That's all I need. I just need a place to live. That's what I want. I don't want to speculate on this. I don't want to have to pe- compete to buy in the private market with people who want capital gains and a, you know, this is part of their portfolio. I just want somewhere to live that's secure and it's near, you know, it's in a reasonably accessible place with lots of different people around. So, so that's what I'm pitching. And I think it wouldn't become as dominant in Australia because remember, all of the dwellings that exist right now are already owned by someone. So they're not going to get switched into the system. You're only going to start alongside it, you know, uh, maybe a third of the new dwellings for the next few decades. And so you're going to create this very small um, system that might end up being 10% or 15% of the total dwellings. But the way, the, the benefit of it is will anchor prices because people, every buyer and renter will have this option. They're not going to outcompete each other so much for rents and prices in the private market. So this kind of, is the price anchor. And that's what I see is the big value from it, even if it's 10% of the housing stock in 10 or 15 years time. Yeah. So I, th- I think, I, I think, you know, uh, that does, you know, look, uh, that is a difference between here and Singapore, well, I say here, but just the Anglosphere and Singapore. Yeah. I mean, Singapore, uh, the reason it was so dominant in a lot of ways was the Land Acquisition Act of 1967, which gave the mm-hmm. government essentially a, you know, an edge on slurping up all the land so the government slurped Mm -hmm. up all the land and you know if you really want to scale something there is a there is you could say if it is if you're making a public option for some sort of widget manufacturer you could just Mm -hmm. basically sell something at cost get an edge and then you know really kind of operate as a buffer stock but when you are dealing with urban housing you at some point need to deal with zero-sum 
problems of, hey, who owns that land? Yeah. Yeah. And I I think you could definitely say we can get our foot in the door and, you know, because like what are the advantages of public housing? Public housing, you can, you know, you can find edges as far as you could uh, essentially, you know, sell at cost or rent at cost. Mm -hmm. You can, you can, you Mm -hmm. can, you know, basically outcompete if you're doing it right. Mm-hmm. So that's that's an advantage. Uh, and the other advantage is you can put different subsidies into it, such as, you know, land subsidy. If you already own the land, you mm-hmm. can basically divvy it up and say, hey, you know, you have access to this land for free, and that is going to advantage it to some degree. You can always mm-hmm. throw in stuff like state, you know, state advantage bonding issues or whatever. There's ways to, you know, push in subsidies. Yeah. The other big one, this speaks earlier to the fact of why do they keep this faucet tight? Why don't they just produce housing, produce housing? It's you're right. The, the logic of the system, which produces housing through pro, you know private provisioners right now, mm-hmm. it has no incentive to make a glut. Sometimes maybe you can be tricked right. or fooled or just be an, an idiot and do a glut. But <laughs> that's the beautiful thing about a public houser is a public houser, you can do counter-cyclical you can drive the prices yeah. down and then keep that faucet going. And to me, yeah. I mean, that is the goal. I mean, I am, call me utopian, like, uh, I really believe housing could become not just stable, but cheap. <laughs> like, I believe yeah. in the future cheap housing. So, so what you've just said is exactly where my thinking got to after thinking about this for a decade or more. Um, you know, I've worked in government departments dealing with planning and zoning, and I've been pushing, for example, betterment taxes or value capture, which we now have in Victoria and, and the ACT. We charge 75% of the value for additional zoning rights. Um, and that's one way to get another subsidy into the public housing developer. Um, but you're totally right. We need, there isn't an incentive to crash the market. You know, that's, we call it a market crash if prices go down and we all panic, right? Yeah. Um, no one's, no property owners are going to start doing that voluntarily. But a non market housing provider can anchor that price, as you say, and keep the tap going and be counter cyclical. So, for example, in about May 2020, when COVID was just launching and the world was panicked, and we were thinking about what sort of subsidies, what sort of economic response do we do to this shutdown? I proposed a central housing bank, which is you know, just my play on the fact that the central bank does counter-cyclical asset trades to stabilise money. I said, why don't we go to all these private developers who are now panicked because they've got no buyers and buy their whole building or their whole subdivision off the plan at a discount and keep all their workers employed finishing that, those projects. I mean, I'm thinking 15% or more below market price to give them the cash up front to just finish the project because their margins are usually 20% or more, plus they're paying 3% commissions and whatnot. So if you can get rid of all that, buy hundreds of dwellings at a time from a lot of projects, keep all those people employed, and then you accumulate counter-cyclically this stock of housing, of public housing in good suburbs where you didn't even have to design or plan it or deal with it. Uh, and then you know, next downturn, you do it again. Of course, no one took that up. <laughs> but I just also want to respond to your other point about uh, Singapore's ability to get land into the public housing system. So 
my understanding is that essentially Singapore was not obliged to compensate private property owners at market prices for a compulsory acquisition. Yeah, they, they basically had, they locked it in 67. So even as mm-hmm. land went up, you could pay 67 prices in 75 and 80. Uh, I think in the U.S. that would not be kosher with the takings no. clause. I don't know about you. It definitely, you know, we have, we have section 52 of the Constitution on just terms clause, which is surprisingly what the film The Castle is about. So oh. every listener, go online, get, get the film The Castle if you want to understand Aussie humor and property culture. That's the place for it. But I think it's actually not as big a deal, this getting land into a public home ownership system as most people think. And I, the reason I say that is because we never seem to have a problem getting land into um, public ownership for new highways, for Olympic stadiums, uh, for casinos. We literally do this all the time. There's an example here uh, in Brisbane. We gave up 10% of the central business district land area, 10% of it, which was all government owned. We cut a deal with an international casino operator to give it to them to build a casino at all hidden, right? No one knows what we're getting out of this. It's, it's amazing what you can do when you want to. And then just recently, down the road from me, uh, the state government, so Brisbane has the 2032 Olympics, so in 10 years' time, I'm in the community group here and we've been lobbying the government to acquire some of these old factories that are still on the waterfront in this inner city location. We've got a concrete factory, a glass factory. Um, it's ridiculous, the stuff that we have right next to million dollar apartments. Hmm. Um, and we're like, well, can you please acquire, acquire this, build some public parks and some public housing? And for the last 15 years, the answer was no. All of a sudden we get the Olympics Behind closed doors, $165 million later, the, the state has acquired this riverfront inner city seven hectare site. So um, what's seven hectares and acres? You'll have to convert that. Is it like um, four acres or something? It's, it's like it's somewhere around that. It's it's four acres a hectare, yeah. Something like that. Um, so, 20, so you're talking like 30 acres in the middle of the city on the riverfront and they paid $165 million. What was? Why did they do that? They did it because in 10 years' time, the international media needs some kind of media center to broadcast the Olympics for two weeks in June. And I'm like, well, hang on a minute. You're willing to do this for this purpose, but not do it for any other public purpose or public housing. And if you run the numbers, you can dedicate a third of that site to public parks and two-thirds to mixed-use residential and commercial, which is very similar to what's already there. And the cost is only about $50,000 per dwelling, Yeah, the, the site cost. So my point being, this is like a worst case scenario for getting land into a public home ownership type system. But even then, the worst case scenario is $50,000 per dwelling, which is not so much at the end of the day. So I don't think it's, it's a make or break thing, the fact that Singapore could acquire private land at those discounted prices. I think it's more of a political will to do it because we do it for casinos and we do it for the Olympics. So here is, I guess, I don't know if you call me you know, blackpilled or what, it, and this overlaps a lot mm-hmm. of you know, what you are saying in your you know, articles and essays and whatnot, which is just, okay, you know, there are people saying we need to build more housing because they say it's going to make it more affordable. But if we make it more affordable, there's going to be a lot of losers, you know, large, mm-hmm. you know, landlords, property estates. 
you know, essentially, if you tr- make housing 30% more affordable, uh, it's going to be a mm-hmm. bloodbath out there. No one who has power is ever going to propose something that will create this bloodbath. And I would say really, you know, certainly right now, as far as creating effective public housing as a buffer stock to drive prices down, when you mm-hmm. have 65% of people invested in home ownership as, at the very least, a store of wealth, but usually an investment, that means you have a mm-hmm. super majority of the population who does not want to see housing become more affordable. So when you say, mm-hmm. isn't it strange Brisbane wants to you know, invest in the Olympics, but doesn't like housing more affordable, mm-hmm. I would say, honestly, that's not surprising at all, mm-hmm. because there's the majority yeah. of people would want to see the Olympics, and the majority of people like like seeing housing become unaffordable. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what yeah, you knew about that. I'm, I'm being facetious, right? Because I'm pretending that they're genuine about calls for wanting cheap housing, right? When, <laughs> when clearly that's not the case, yeah. and that's what I've written about many times. So, but I, I guess that, I mean, but a serious question to you is: How do we spin up social housing if a super majority of the population yeah. is yeah. materially invested against? you know doing it in a way that would that would be effective yeah so that that that's that's where i always get to it's a it's a political conundrum here because if we get to the point of singapore where everyone wants houses to be cheap and everyone the right to have a cheap housing then there's no we're in a different equilibrium a different social equilibrium we can call it but we're not there we're the opposite one right now and you're completely right and i think lars um Dusted, i don't know how to pronounce this surname, i do you say interviewed about to say online games and he actually mentioned, I think, in that interview that one of the problems with remedying high housing prices in online games is that the early gamers who essentially have monopolized the property don't want you to change the game to get rid of their advantage in it. Yep. And so they have their own politics in that game world that's reflected in reality, where, as you say, it's 66% of households are homeowners. We've got 18% of households are landlords. The average politician owns 2.3 properties worth a million dollars each on average. And if you add up, there's over 5,000 politicians in Australia, if you add up the councils, the states and the federal government. And so if they own $2.3 million of property, you're talking $13 billion of property assets. And the question is, can you get a group of people who own $13 billion of property together to write rules to wipe billions from their balance sheet? And I I think that's implausible. So you're completely right. And I guess that's what has pushed me to this Singapore idea is that I think it it is more advantageous politically. Okay. So I think land value taxes how? have how, a lot how of- How is it more advantageous? Because the way I would pitch it is a little bit like public health care. Say, oh, you guys can keep your private health insurance. I'm just giving people another option. I don't want to change the value of your property I just want your kids to have this other option as well. They can still choose to buy yours at a million dollars, but they might or they might not. See, I'm just giving them an extra option. I'm not here to try and manipulate the value of your biggest asset. I'm here to let your market function as it always does. I would classify it as a sneak attack. You know, you 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 don't let people know. You don't let people know the goals of affordability. <laughs> you just create affordability, no, which is it's a strategy. That's true. But look, in Singapore, right, in Singapore, non-HDB dwellings are very expensive still, uh, very, very expensive. So it's not like it's anchored. There, there, there are still international buyers. There are still landlords who are comparing the investment in private property to the yield and to other assets 
who will support the price as it is, right? So, so I think in a way it doesn't it doesn't directly affect price as much as you might think, because you can you're only taking away first home buyers who don't own other property, and I think that's going to be fewer and fewer as time goes by, because that those elderly people remember are ninety percent homeowners, they're all going to die in the next decade or two. And all those dwellings are going to be owned by their descendants. And many of them are not going to own property and they're not going to be first home buyers. So um, you're only sort of taking away a certain portion of the market, but that doesn't mean that those buyers who are still in the private market, those private landlords, international investors, upgrade upgraders, downsizers, people who want the private capital gains and want a big fancy house in the suburbs, they're still going to pay for it premium. Yeah. So I guess my pitch is that it might have a small price effect, but it, it you know, if we're going to if we're going to talk honestly here, yeah, I think it's sort of a less than 5% type effect, but the benefit to those individual households who can t- take up that option is, you know, 50 to 70% in terms of the, the cash flow that they would have to spend on housing. Is, is Australia becoming serious about spending any of this up? Because, I mean, honestly, I mean, I don't know if you've been aware of it. Uh, it, it you know, recently got killed in committee, but it got really far. California, uh, AB 2053, which we've spoken in this program a number of times, uh, is a bill creating a California social houser, which really is a lot closer to the Singapore model than the classic, you know, kind of heavily means-tested mm-hmm programs and we uh we're seeing in hawaii there's a honolulu program that they've been spinning yeah. up which is very much a singapore based uh, or kind of modeled program i've noticed that yeah you know i've i've contacted senator stanley chang before yeah, about great. that um yeah the the appetite here is still not very high hmm. i think what's going to change it there's a petition to trial it in the act uh, which is, you know, it would be great. I think you only need one or two projects to trial it and I think it will start a wave. I think what might change it is what's also happening, I believe, in some places in California is teachers and nurses in expensive areas and employing people in the public sector where you can't just pay them a premium, right? It's very difficult with the unions and the teachers and the nurses to just go, oh, you not only do you get to teach at a fancy school with all the rich kids, I'm going to pay you more, right? You're like, hang on a minute. So I have to deal with all the tough kids out here and you're going to pay me less. So um, I think if something got up like that, I believe there's one in California right now, a school district. Yeah, actually, um, I saw that recently. teacher housing. Yeah, it's uh, um, a daily city, I, I think, you know, right right in the Bay Area. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. you know, workforce housing, I, mean, I think you're kind of describing a lot of cases of essentially a segmented market. It's like, don't worry about the mm-hmm. overall market. This is a special mm-hmm. case. And certainly, mm-hmm. I think that's easier politics. So it gets your foot in the door. Yeah. And, and that's how you'd start. Obviously, you can't ramp it up and let anyone who doesn't own property qualify because that's 34% of households, right? Yeah. Um, that's 3.4 million households who might decide. Um, all of a sudden they want this uh, affordable new dwelling and it could be a detached house in the new outer suburbs. It could be a townhouse in the suburbs, that soft infill, or it could be an apartment, but um, you're never going to be able to ramp up and accommodate that. So I think you need some kind of um, starting category of people who can, uh, who, who, uh, who are eligible. 
And then you expand from there and go, yeah, once all the teachers are happy and the, you know, these key public servants, then it's open to anyone because we've really ramped up the, the process here. And maybe residents who've lived in your city for five years who aren't homeowners, they're next. And then it's anybody anywhere uh, and you're back to Singapore. Yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, just uh, we've talked for more than an hour, but I, I have a few other mm-hmm. things I just kind of want to, you know, kind of you know, ask about. So you've you know, different articles uh, you've written about the housing supply myth. And I mm-hmm. think reading over this, I think there's two kind of like. I, I, to me, this 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 title is even, I think, misleading insofar as people would say that and would say, oh, you know, we have as much housing as we should need. And I think it's kind of clear reading it. You're really talking about like a theory of change, which is just a lot of people mm-hmm. are saying we need to do zoning reform. A bunch of housing will be created. Affordability will be reached. And you're saying mm-hmm. that theory of change is mm-hmm. misguided. Uh and I, I, I think right. off, 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 hand, I would, I would, I, I would agree with that. I, I don't think, I don't think that simply doing zoning reform and hoping that developers will be tricked into a permanent glut is going to happen. Uh, but I guess maybe speak on that yeah. a bit more and have a few follow up. Great. So the way I start talking about supply is that we have more bigger, better dwellings per capita than any point in history. So if supply is an issue. It's the least of an issue it's ever been throughout human history today. Now, I'm not saying that we more is worse. I'm saying more is better, but we are at more housing right now. So that's an important context. If you're talking about, oh, back in the day, back in the day when there was 5.5 people per dwelling on average and the dwellings were half the size they are and they didn't have air conditioning or you know, insulation or appliances like are we really saying that's <laughs> that's um, the the place we want to get to with supply? So you're right. It's more about theory of the housing production rate, yeah. and that property owners aren't in the business of minimizing the value of their property. They're in the business of maximizing it. And to maximize it, there's a rate per period that you drip feed supply, not only individually, but across the market as a whole, that maximizes the value. So that's my uh, theory of change. And I guess my other warning about this is that mass upzoning is essentially an upwards redistribution of wealth. If you just mass upzone, the only people who get more value today, the day after, let's just say, are the people who already own property, the exact people that you're trying to reduce their wealth so the people who don't own property can buy, right? Because the way I see it, if you think about property rights as uh, you know, collectively granted exclusive rights to three-dimensional cubes on planet Earth, so it's just the space of the Earth and we're, we partition it up into cubes, well, detached housing is essentially a cube where the height limit is, what, 10 metres? So in Brisbane, it's 9.5 metres. The air above that cube, the cube on top, is owned collectively. Right? We own it. Right. Um, so when we privatize that, that air, okay, we're essentially giving valuable property rights to someone who already owns valuable property rights for free. So I'm a big fan of charging for that. And you can do it in many ways. You can sell those property rights or you can tax the value of them, which is what happens in the ACT, where you tax 75% of the value gain from a change of use. 
Um, so the, the way I explain the ACT is on your title, it says, you know, the property right you own is a detached house up to 10 metres tall. You can sell that back to the state and we'll give you a different property title that says 40 metres tall and you can pay us 75% of a difference in value for those two property titles. That's how it works. Um, and they raise hundreds of millions of dollars. Like the ACT has only, um, I think, 600,000 people, and they raise hundreds of millions of dollars a year through that. So anyway, that's my point. Upzoning is fine. Density is good, as I said, about how cities should develop. But as a, as a method of change, uh, don't give it for free. It's It worsens inequality. And secondly, don't expect it to have big effect on prices certainly may change the shape of the cities and that can be desirable itself, but you can do better than that by also charging for those gains. Yeah, so I, I think I have a couple questions. Uh, I think the first one is more or less maybe a, uh, I guess, a critique, which is to say, mm-hmm. I, I think there's kind of a, I think throughout the articles, it seems to say as a fact, an upzoning is always going to lead to landowners realizing more value. And mm-hmm. I suppose like if you talk about one particular parcel and then you give more allowance to build Mm -hmm. certainly i think if you do that for one parcel no matter where it is that is going to be a giveaway Mm -hmm. if Mm -hmm. you in an entire city say there is no height limits for instance i would say that Uh in a lot of places if you are out like an outer ring suburb who the only reason people live there is they can't live closer to city core you mm-hmm. will likely see, uh, you know, essentially your land value go down. I, I think, honestly, it is, you know, like undoing a girdle. It doesn't mean that the, you know, the fat expands infinitely. Instead, it will, re- like, a lot of times things are pushed out from under the girdle because they aren't in, yeah. their, like, the space where they're seeking out. And, I mean, which right. is to say a broad-based upzoning will increase land values in some places and decrease it in others um, and I, I suppose yeah, like yeah. It, and I, which at least makes the political calculus a lot more complicated uh, I guess uh, this is a common argument and I disagree with it uh, and the, the reason I disagree with it is because additional options always add value to an asset now, you can argue there's an equilibrium response, but that equilibrium response um, relies on additional dwellings being built at a faster rate to depress the rental price. It relies on some of some kind of miscoordination that, you know, let's just say you've got 10, uh, let's just say you've got 100 property owners who can build 10 stories each, they can build 1,000, and the current number of dwellings is 100. Okay, so there's 900 potential new dwellings. And then you give them an additional right to build 2,000. It's still only 100 dwellings, but each person, when they strike their option, when they take their turn to develop, they'll develop twice as densely on that site. Yeah? So essentially, that person gets additional gain because not everyone, because you're relying my point being, your argument that the you know some places go up, some places go down relies on an on a behavioural response that we just agreed doesn't occur because property owners aren't in the business of flooding the market. So the market will still have the same number of dwellings, the same number of potential sellers of property, and hence the same price. 
it's a little bit like saying, you know, you own some shares in Apple, some stocks, and they go up in value. Okay, so do you sell? Do you return it to the equilibrium because they went up in value? Do you sell all your stock till it goes back down? That would be a behavioral response, right? And because we don't get that, you know, some, when everyone gets up zoned, some people go, and go, oh, great, now I'll quickly develop till the price goes back down and we'll get this sort of averaging out effect. So, so yeah, I, I guess I disagree on that. Um, and I, would, I disagree I would... because there are already, and maybe this is more important, there are already millions of potential new buildings that can be built. You know, I, I'm very familiar with the planning scheme in Brisbane and Sydney, and there are millions and millions of already provable development options out there. And changing that from 2 million to 3 million, I'm like, no one even knows what that number is, right? Except me and a few other planning nerds. <laughs> yeah. So I don't see how it's going to change behavior and prices. Well, which would seem to indicate that the three meter limit doesn't matter then and you could just get rid of it if if there's already a, if, if the zone capacity is not being touched because for Correct. whatever reason you know the uh it seems like th how does the three meter height limit for instance matter if we're it changes not changes the shape of where things happen right so sure that's what the planning rules do so it's a bit like i call the planning rules my best analogy is they're like lane markings on the road they say, if you want to drive east, go on this side of the road. If you want to drive west, go on that side. Drive as fast as you like, though. I'm just telling you where vehicles pointing in different directions should go. Now, does that constrain the use of that road by making, you know, these cars go that way and these cars go this way? Hmm, probably not. It's some kind of coordination. Now, you might say it's inefficient that we should, you know, at certain hours change which way a lane goes and you could improve efficiency but I'd, it's it's not a speed limit it's just a sort of spatial coordination tool so the example people give me is oh what if you upzoned what if you got rid of all the golf courses in london or england right and let people build houses wouldn't that crash the market right because now you've got all this space and my answer is well kind of no you might see a little bit of extra turnover and a little bit of development as that sort of niche in the market gets filled up. Um, but then you'll see those people who've just bought there, they're not buying somewhere else. They're not buying their alternative. Mm. So across the market as a whole, I don't think you'll see much effect. And that's, I guess, the same point um, about mass upzoning. So Auckland did this, right? Auckland upzoned in 2016, the whole city. Um, they Auckland, I think, has about 600,000 dwellings. They already had about a million dwellings in their zone capacity and i think they doubled it to two million in one day yeah. and then prices went up 50 percent. so <laughs> yeah so, um, so i suppose uh just, just to talk about you say that giving an option to develop is always you know going to you know basically be a value i mean i would mm -hmm. say that's one way to phrase it the way i would i would say a lot of this you know exhibits itself is to say a zoning, you know, or basically density restrictions operate as a, effectively a cartel. And if a cartel is broken or lifted or defections, absolutely a defection from a cartel can work to limit prices. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yeah, I, I would point. say you can certainly, if, if an argument is, well, effectively all landowners operate as a cartel in general, there's going to be uh, you know, the faucet is going to be held and people 
aren't going to defect in practice, that certainly is an argument. I would say historically, at least in many like places, there's a reason that zoning laws went to effect. The question is, why did these density restrictions happen? Certainly in the places I'm familiar with, they happened because snobs who live in a well-to-do neighborhood didn't want to see an apartment. You know, Basically, they didn't want to see a parcel defect and build an apartment. And I would say... It seems like, well, you know, there is some risk of defection or else they wouldn't have yeah, put this yeah. damn thing in place in the oh, first place. Look, yeah. Okay. So just on that, you know, why is zoning there in the first place and those snobby areas protecting their sort of um, lifestyle from apartments and whatnot. I guess the, the, the puzzle with that argument is that you find in a lot of surveys that renters are also NIMBYs and don't like apartments in their areas. <laughs> And so the question would be, well, if this is all about protecting the price, why would the person paying the high price and benefiting from the low price also essentially hold similar views? Why would they not hold opposite views? Because essentially they, they benefit from the competition and the lower prices. The polls I, uh, I've seen so have said that renters you know, are embrace building more than homeowners do. You know, There's not going to be 100% yeah. agreement. I would say that... You can certainly point to, well, people could have bad analysis. People could always, you know, have yeah. like, oh, when I see a crane, it's where expensive housing is. It's, you know, and just yeah. kind of believe dumb stuff. That's true. Um, there's also, I guess, uh, I think the best survey had long-term renters were essentially identical to homeowners in their view, but the short-term renters weren't because essentially, hmm. you know, you could argue that they're invested in the lifestyle and the neighborhood, et cetera. Um, so it's still a it's still a puzzle. But in terms of the cartel idea, I think that's almost my point. My point is that the property ownership system is a cartel. It is a system. It's a monopoly system. And when you upzone, you don't change the number of people who own property rights. You essentially give more property rights to the same cartel, right? <laughs> so, okay, so the question is, they were already not defecting, and you just gave them free money. Why would they not defect now? So you're relying on someone who was constrained, who wanted to defect but couldn't. And I find it very difficult to believe when there's millions of potential developers out there that adding an extra 50,000 is somehow going to create all these defectors who are going to start building. Yeah. So I would say, okay, here is my, I was talking, I mean, we've talked about theories of change and I think we do kind mm -hmm. of need to start wrapping up at some point, but here is mm -hmm. my theory of change in general, which is to say, I think out of the mm -hmm. gate, in a major, major, major sense, you are correct, which is to say, I believe broad-based upzoning would in fact enrich a lot of, you know, powerful landlords and mm -hmm. landowners in certain areas there is absolutely mm -hmm. going to be a giveaway. I, I mean, I would prefer to see a land value tax be enacted tomorrow and just suddenly mm -hmm. perfect policy takes place. I don't think we have the political means to achieve this. Okay, so I believe what is good about a broad-based upzoning, I would say in some sense, I like to. I was saying earlier, I want to see less car use. I want to see better shapes of cities. So mm -hmm. that's true. Uh-huh. Uh, I believe also it's it's going to enable, I think, you know, I think less NIMBYism. If you really just, you know, jackboot NIMBYs out the door, you're going to have a public housers are going to have a better time of it. You like NIMBYs are just bad news. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're bad people. But OK, I think this is a real thing. Like, I think that if you say that you're going to have more powerful ownership among people like this, you're also the flip side of that is 
a larger percent of the population is going to be landless. And you could say that's a bad thing de facto. I believe politically it's a very good thing. I believe that you Uh could say this is accelerationist nonsense and very dangerous. You will own nothing and be happy. But honestly, Mm -hmm. an ownership society, I think, has these terrible problems. And honestly, Mm -hmm. this is why I say over and over again, step one, lower the home ownership percentage through policy. Because <laughs> like one, you, yeah. you can do that. It's it's going to be, people are like going to say you're helping the wrong people. But once the home ownership yeah. rate is down, like Berlin, home ownership, like ownership mm-hmm. rate, uh, 85% people are renters in Berlin. And I think they have much better policy as a result. Uh, and I guess... Yeah, they do have more secure policies for renters, you're right. But they yeah. also, also are now petitioning to seize the assets of private landlords and bring them back into a public ownership. Hell to decrease yeah, rent. that's what I so, like. That's what I like. Yeah, so I guess I, I, I guess your argument about the accelerationists that once you reach this point, then you find um, um, the political incentives aligned. I, get, I, I, I agree. I, th- I think that's... That's true, in, and it would happen under those circumstances. Um, I guess. I guess the question is, how politically palatable is it, for example, um, for Australia to let the home ownership fall from sixty-six percent to thirty-six percent, sure. or whatever it would need to be? Like that's um, three million households. Very tricky politically, and I think all the action would occur in marginal political seats as well. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I have no strong view about which way it goes. I think you can have a secure, stable, robust, efficient cities, um, all those good things we want with 5% home ownership, right? Yeah. It's, it's, I think there are many ways to skin this cat. Um, I, you know, I think my, my personal preference is to copy Singapore and get a pilot up and, and have that sort of outside option and then try and politically just keep happy everyone who it is. And that's how I think I, you know, we can navigate the situation right now. Land value taxes, we did a transition in the ACT. It works fine. Um, but again, politically tricky. I think we should just secretly you know, do it behind closed doors in a budget one day and not announce it and just avoid the whole public debate and just ratchet them up. <laughs> I often find we over consult on this stuff. We essentially, we essentially go and give our opposition plenty of time to come up with their arguments and lobby against us by consulting. Whereas what we want to do is just do it. Yeah. Just quickly announced. Oh, land taxes have been ratcheted up. Sorry, homeowners, your exemption is now ratcheted down. Uh, the next five years, you're going to be in this transition period. Sorry, move that's, on to that's the That's the real topic. Singapore method, just rule by decree. Yeah. Well, look, uh, it's interesting because we had. I'll give you an interesting example. I think it was about 2009, we had a minerals resources rent tax. This was a proposed super profit tax on mining because it's such a big sector of the Australian economy, mining, oil and gas, etc. And we had all these consultations and whatnot. And then all the international mining companies and oil companies just lobbied against it. They got so organized and it, it evaporated mm. within 12 months. Two weeks ago, the Queensland government announced a new royalties program for coal essentially we've got a rising block royalty so whatever the price is the higher the price the more of a percentage you get at the margin they just announced it in the budget and moved on just quietly announced it nice didn't have any consultation not a single like public meeting and moved on to the next issue in the political cycle and now the miners are you know they're they're on the back foot 
and they've got essentially nothing to say, no interested press to um, present their point of view, and it's done. Yeah. And we're going to get an extra few billion a year from, from the extremely high coal prices right now. So anyway, that's my point. Uh, in terms of your, let, let me just wrap up uh, and reflect on what you were just saying about change and the upzoning. Look, I really just think we should be thinking about pricing the value of these rights when we upzone. I'm a big supporter of you know, densification and the clustering of the cities. And I'm pragmatic about preserving you know, certain suburbs or whatever the case may be. But I really think you should be charging the value gains where they occur when they're large and you, you know, use them to invest in the infrastructure upgrades to accommodate uh, those denser suburbs. Isn't, isn't that, I mean, just offhand, isn't that going to be really difficult politics? Let's say you have like ACT, you know, uh, has, you know, 75% of this uplift you're taxed away. Mm-hmm. If you have a, like a snobby, you know, kind of rich, neighborhood of low family houses and you say hey let's get rid of the snob zoning let's actually allow duplexes or something Mm -hmm. if your first calculation is this is going to double the value like if people vote for it they would have to pay a gigantic tax to continue to live in their Mm -hmm. home because now they have the option to build a duplex that seems like they're going to revolt no the way way it operates the way it operates is okay um the planning system sort of hovers over the top and the planning system can change its zoning, its density, can do whatever it wants, but you essentially own a property title that says detached house, right? Yeah. Even if the planning scheme separately says 10-story apartment tower. When you want to take up that option to develop- Oh, it's an impact you, fee. It, is, it isn't, it is okay. <laughs> so it's just, Yeah, it's essentially an impact fee. Well, okay. You know, it's payable on development which is slightly different to what's in Victoria. Sydney had one of these in the 1970s for a political cycle. It was 30% of the value gained from converting rural to urban uses. Um, but what's interesting is that during that election cycle, all the wealthy landowners on the city fringe got together and lobbied to get rid of the same government. So that government had to then promise at the next election to unwind their major proposal. Um, so, yes, it, it is somewhat politically difficult, but, um, you know, the impact fees are pretty well accepted and essentially charging them based on value, I think, is is better than on cost. Okay, yeah, actually, okay. As long as a rezoning doesn't create this chaos, that sounds a lot less nutty. So I'm glad glad you you kind of remedied Mm. that that issue. And one one thing I saw you note was like the idea, if you want to stop people from basically getting a permit and sitting on it, you could have an impact fee which would go up in time, which is to say you are penalized for sitting on it. I, I, I actually mentioned yeah. some people like that's a really clever idea. I think some people say it may not be kosher in California for different, you know, Howard Jarvis law reasons, but that's a that's a clever idea offhand. Yeah. So I think in like the idea is clever. I think the practicality undermines it. <laughs> and the reason is Although we approve major projects, you know, with hundreds of apartments or thousands of detached homes, it's the landowner's discretion to apply for some subcomponent of that in an application. Hmm. And so if you do the whole application and know that your impact fee is going to go up over time, you'll just break it down into five stages of application, right? So that each application gets to reset the impact fee. So that's how... You know, that's my concern about that sort of stuff. But the, the point of the thought exercise is that it's to help people understand 
the value of delaying new housing sales yeah right into the next period and that's where i think we've got to get our head around that density and the rate of supply are different things densities dwellings per land area on a site rate of supply the number of new dwellings across all sites in a period of time and if we want to change the rate of supply we've got to change this intertemporal trade-off to make waiting more expensive and building today um, give you a better return and that's you know land tax is a part of that obviously because they go up as undeveloped property values go up sure um, but you know maybe there's other ways to do it as well that's sort of my what the thought experiment there Pretty cool. Uh, yeah, so I think yeah, we definitely did you know, kind of you know wrap things up now. But I, I was I definitely picking your brain about Australia for a bit. Uh, anything else you want to make sure you get off your chest or talk about or? No, I think we we really got it all um, in this one. I just think we need to come together a little bit. I think you've obviously spoken to so many people. You've got a pretty coherent view of what's a political constraint and what's a genuine economic constraint. And and some people don't. They sort of build in politics into their economics um, and I think we could probably um, get past some of that um, and I, I think the puzzle that I always come to is that there's such broad agreement that building more houses is generally a good thing and governments will do anything in their power to avoid just building houses whereas if we had a submarine shortage <laughs> or a road shortage they'd just go and build it um, yeah. so there's this weird political aversion and I remember speaking to a very left um, retired senator a couple of years ago who was asking me about housing. And he's like, oh, what should we do? I said, what do you want? He's like, well, we want more housing. We want poor people to have cheap housing. I'm like, why don't you just build the housing you want these people to have and let them live in it for the price you think they should pay, which seems to be the outcome you want. And he said, well, you know, but, you know, governments don't get involved in housing anymore. I'm like, well, you're the government. You, you decide whether that's true. I don't think anyone's going to get upset if you built houses. Yeah. Um, but it's this sort of political um, constraint. And I, I would love to get past that and see an active, you know, public involvement in home building. Uh, and I think, you know, there's definitely a lot of common ground across, I think, all, all sort of um, schools of thought on on cities should densify as well as expand, and I think the change needs to be a little bit soft and incremental there to to win the battle to avoid the sort of backlash. Yeah. It's a very tricky one to navigate. Yeah, and I would just say, I mean, I definitely agree. We we need all the you know solidarity and togetherness as we can. Uh, which I, 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 I one I, the one thing I'd really push back on, which I don't know who's in your like who's in your backyard or something, <laughs> but you're saying kind of like criticizing the d zoning reformers that you know mm -hmm. publicly building the housing is not their preferred solution. And I would just say honestly, at least where I'm at, you know, that's not true. So. Yeah. I'd say make sure not to straw yeah, man well, your, your outgroup or something because I think, yeah, yeah, we all need to work together here. Yeah, I would say in Australia, the, the, the upzoning for housing affordability, there's the overlap with the public home buildings pretty pretty small. Well, let's see, yeah. hope that changes. So it, might, it might change. It might change. Yeah, I, I would like it to change. Um, but, but currently, it's, it's a very small overlap. Well, let's let's yep. not harden our battle lines because I think we need we yeah, need yeah, all the help we can get. But uh, in the meantime, yeah, thank you so much Perfect. for making the time here today. Yeah, I appreciate it, Mark. I've always loved your podcast. Keep it up. Cool, 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 cool. We have been talking to Cameron Murray all about Australia. 
housing markets, land banking, public housing, and much, much more. You can find this episode and all previous episodes of this radio show at the website cedacat.org. This is a presentation of Keisha Shu, Stanford. Thank you.